Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Danielle Burkowski, Senior Online Editor for Northwestern University Law Review. And I'm Annie Prosnitz, the Editor-in-Chief of the Northwestern University Law Review. In this episode, we are thrilled to bring you Professor Michelle Goodwin. She is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at the University of California, Irvine. Professor Goodwin will be discussing her essay, The Transgender Military Ban, Preservation of Discrimination Through Transformation, that she co-authored with Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean and Professor at UC Berkeley School of Law. Their essay contends that the Trump administration's ban on transgender individuals serving in the military is based on prejudice and bias, lacking any legitimate justification. The essay identifies several problems with the Trump administration's policy to ban transgender individuals from serving in the U.S. military, and posits that promoting equality in the military will occur only when the humanity of those who wish to serve and are qualified to serve are permitted to do so with dignity and respect. We hope you enjoy this episode. Professor Goodwin, for our listeners who have not yet read your essay, could you briefly describe the ban, what it entails, and your main argument? First, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. This is so exciting, podcasting, this sexy, interesting new thing that people are doing. So with this essay, what we take on and and challenge is the Trump administration's ban, which actually started with President Trump uh, doing some early morning tweeting in 2017, where he said that the military should not be stuck paying uh, money for individuals who are transgender to serve within our military, and basically that they are not welcomed and will not be serving within our military. This was a transition from Obama-era policy that allowed transgender individuals to serve openly in the military. It was only later that then uh, President Trump's administration, through a Mattis report, provided some justifications, which we find unfounded, uh, the justifications that they make in the Mattis report, to legitimize this ban. We say that this ban is just simply unconstitutional and that it's discriminatory. This topic is, of course, relevant to both lawyers and non-lawyers. What was your goal in writing this essay? Well, our goal in writing this essay is to express a few things. Uh, First, the constitutional citizenship of transgender individuals. You know, years ago, it was a profound statement to say that women's rights are human rights. One could say the same thing. Two, with LGBTQ equality, that LGBTQ persons are also deserving of human rights and, in fact, have constitutional rights in the United States, and that the intervention by the Supreme Court in lifting the stays, because at the lower court, injunctions were placed against the implementation of the Trump administration's ban. That was actually lifted by this Supreme Court. 
We find that to be outrageous and not justified in law. And that really inspired this article. And I must say that for us, we're also mindful because neither Dean Shimerinsky or I come from within the LGBTQ community. And so we're sensitive to that, but we also find it really important to intervene in this space, which is what we've sought to do. So we'll take it back a few steps. It's easy to think of the administration's decision in a vacuum or simply in the context of other seemingly anti-civil rights decisions, but you offer historical parallels. First, you parallel military discrimination based on race and sex around World War II, and second, you parallel government discrimination against those who identify as LGBTQ, for example, the Lavender Scare. Could you talk more about these comparisons from American history and why they matter today? That's... A really great question. You know, one of the things that we uh, take on uh, as a foundational matter in this piece is to challenge what is uh, the current administration's stand, which is that the military will lose its effectiveness, its readiness, and its lethality if there are trans individuals openly serving. That comes straight out of a stereotype playbook, uh, that, that somehow the military can't be effective with transgender people, that somehow they can't be as lethal as anybody else with the right tools in their hands, that somehow they're untrainable as anybody else, or even the notion that they hadn't already been serving and in the military already, just simply closeted. We find that deeply problematic. But what's very interesting is that those same arguments were used in the past. Those were the same types of arguments that were trotted out in the past to justify bans on African-Americans serving in the military or to place quotas on African-Americans serving in the military or quotas on women serving in the military or the intersectional quotas on black women serving in the military. And so in our piece, we talk about that the way in which <clears throat> this is just a matter of preserving discrimination. So this history, African-Americans um, had been banned from the military, uh, then they uh, were able to serve in the military. Now, it's worth noting that from the very first of American wars, there were African-Americans giving their life in service to this country, even when uh, they had a stratified citizenship or no citizenship at all. And so it's through Jim Crow era, really, when the uh, lifting of the ban on black people serving in the military comes about through President Truman and an executive order. But prior to that time, there had been arguments that the military somehow would not be as cohesive if black people were able to serve. When black people did serve, they served in segregated uh, spaces, the segregated mess halls, you know, segregated sleeping spaces, segregated troops. And with that, it's important to note what they came home to in the United States as well. Horrific kinds of conditions where, in fact, some said that even being captured uh, in combat by foreign countries was somehow less odious than coming back home to the deep racism and hostility at home. It's been documented, in fact, the kinds of lynchings, police brutality, and much else 
that black service persons came back to in the United States. This has been written about by academics, but really so much more could be explored in this. And then we turn to women. And it turns out that some of the same justifications, women won't be effective in the military, that women can't be lethal, that the military will lack its cohesion or that cohesion will somehow dissipate uh, under the weight of women uh, coming to serve. Very problematic, very problematic. Uh, Quotas being placed on women at 2% capping the service of women at 2%. Or women can serve, but they can't be in combat. And what's also very interesting is the way in which racism and sexism collide or intersect such that racism being used as a proxy for sexism and barring black women in service or in placing quotas on their service with justifications that, well, If they had to serve, then it means that we have to build more barracks because, of course, after all, racism has primacy and we can't have black women serving right alongside and sleeping right alongside white women. And wouldn't that just add cost, right, which are the same kinds of financial justifications that we're seeing now for banning transgender persons that it would just cost so much to have them serve. So, you know, that all leads up to and you asked about the lavender scare, uh, which is Uh, a devastating period in our history, in our military history, in our U.S. history, uh, where President Eisenhower then imposes an an executive order that ultimately does such heinous things towards LGBTQ people, not just in the military, uh, but also through government, with stalking, arrests, investigations, so much pressure such that individuals leave service within the government, leave service within the military, high rates of of suicide. We don't know how many people were affected, but it's estimated that the thousands were, maybe five to 10,000 people affected. We know that there were suicides um, of individuals who had worked in government who were alleged to be gay or who actually were gay. We know that there was wiretapping of their phones. We know that there were threats that were made Um, that their family members would be informed during a period so heinous as as that and during the period of Jim Crow which you know we probably need a name that that's the equivalent for LGBTQ Jim Crow right because there was that era where in fact it was just so frightening uh, that the prospect that family members would uh, would be told that their loved one their son their daughter was gay that this forced people into the closet. And so there were court marshalings of individuals who were gay and serving um, in the military. And it's it's a period that we shouldn't forget and one that we should speak much more loudly uh, about. Carried out by people whom, uh, who've al- already been notorious in our history, Senator McCarthy, you know, who made statements about the pervert as easy prey to the blackmailer as a justification for rooting out gay people within um, American service. So moving to a more legal discussion here, part of your central claim is an issue of procedure. What is the procedural posture in this case, and what, if anything, do you think it means for Supreme Court intervention? I keep saying, what a great question. You guys are so smart. Um, Well, because the Supreme Court rarely intervenes in lifting 
uh, a, a stay. I mean, it was very rarely lifts an injunction that's been placed on that that's been pl- put in place by a lower court, unless there's been some abuse of discretion. Procedurally, the challenges to the Trump administration's transgender ban were going along fine. The Trump administration was able to appeal the injunctions. Appeals were to be heard before the Ninth Circuit. Uh, And so it's extraordinary that the Supreme Court intervened uh, to lift, basically, these injunctions. And we note that it's 5-4. It's Justices Robert, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And what we're concerned about is what does this portend for the types of what we could call victories that have recently been won in the Supreme Court by LGBTQ communities. When we think about Windsor, when we think about Obergefell, when you think about Lawrence v. Texas, it's important to note that the Supreme Court has shifted. Justice Kennedy is no longer on the court. Justice Kennedy was really seen as the kind of stalwart hero in the discourse about LGBTQ equality. I'd add caveats that he wasn't necessarily that with regard to women's rights issues, but he certainly was that pioneer on the court as it related to LGBTQ uh, advancement and equality. And so we worry about retrenchment. So do you think the issue here is more procedural or substantive? It's a matter of both, right? I think one of the concerns is the politicization of this court. Now, it's one thing to be ideologically divided. Um, That's true of courts over time. Uh, But it's another thing when a court becomes partisan or is perceived as being partisan. And in such instances, it's uh, it's possible to uh, cover... Um, what are substantive concerns with procedure and also vice versa, you know, to cover procedural issues with so-called substantive um, concerns. Either way here, we see it as problematic. We see it as problematic as a substantive constitutional matter, um, the erosion of or the failure to recognize the constitutional rights of trans individuals. We see it equally problematic, the way in which the court intervened here, which is incredibly rare for the Supreme Court to intervene as it has in this case. And so either way one slices it, it's hard to find legitimacy in the actions of this Supreme Court. And, you know, I'd say that more broadly, we've been seeing this with five, four decisions where whether it's the First Amendment being weaponized against uh, other groups and the First Amendment being used to harm others, or in other instances, this is a court that stands on the precipice of perhaps being perceived as losing its integrity. Uh, Professor Goodwin, a lot of the rationale for this ban comes down to costs. Can you speak a bit on that? Doesn't everything come down to costs? Well, and in fact, we take that on um, in the piece, too. You know, we are in the, the time of misinformation. 
the power of misinformation uh, writ large nationwide shapes how people now come to understand things. And so we take that on in the case. So it's important to know that before uh, the uh, Obama administration then lifted what was remaining in law that kept transgender persons closeted, they uh, collaborated with RAND to do a number of studies and consultations to figure out these questions about military readiness, effectiveness, lethality, what was happening internationally, and also with regard to cost, which you've just so brilliantly raised. And what RAND reported was that this would be just minimal. We're talking about a 0.038% to a possible 0.054% increase in military spending. What we're talking about then in in terms, um, possibly two to $8 million increase per year. But let's put that in context. Currently, the military spends annually $84 million on erectile dysfunction medications for heterosexual men in the military with no problem and has been doing so, right? Nearly $300 million on erectile dysfunction medications for heterosexual men between 2011 and 2014. So clearly... The military is willing to spend resources within this domain, and they they should be willing to. I mean, let's think about this. We have a military that doesn't have a draft. So we have a military where often the most vulnerable people are sent out to serve all around the world. They're they're sent out to combat in places like uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan and other parts of the world, there we don't even get the reports on all of the injuries that they come back with, physical and mental health. Why should we be policing their health care at all? Their insurance care. Like I would not actually want to police the fact that we're spending so much money on erectile dysfunction medications for men in the military. But it's because the Trump administration has tweeted out that somehow the cost for providing services for um, transgender individuals in case they might want to transition would just overwhelm the military, that one has to empirically tackle that, which is what we seek to do in this piece. And that is, of course, what the Rand, what Rand also did in the reports that they provided to uh, the Obama administration, which are on hand for the Trump administration as well. And so these arguments that have been made are quite specious. They're empty. They're weak. Um, they are incredibly unfounded. And let me add one point to that as well. One of the reasons that the lower courts, right, in the Karnowski v. Trump, Stockman v. Trump, these are those district court cases where injunctions were, um, were placed on the um, implementation of the ban. You know, what they found is that the Trump administration had failed to provide any empirical data that actually supported their claims. Now, this is actually relevant because for the last three years, transgender service members have been serving openly. So we would have that information, right? If the Trump administration says, well, this costs us so much, we've lost lethality, 
We don't have effectiveness. There's no cohesion. You would think that they would able, be able to produce documentation of that but they haven't been able to produce documentation of that. And in reality, what we know is that dating back more than 50 years, there have been investigations actually done within the military to address these very questions. Now, I should say that this was also suppressed information because the findings were military is actually just fine. In fact, doing really okay with gay folks serving. I have to say this information was suppressed People didn't know about it. Uh, this is information that's been lifted within the last 10 or 15 years. But for a very long time, we know that these are just specious, empty arguments that are made. These are illegitimate arguments that happen to be made, and they're just simply rooted in discrimination. And so what we seek to do with this piece is to highlight that that discrimination is just as wrong today as it was decades ago with discrimination against black people in the military, discrimination against women in the military, discrimination against gays and lesbians in the military. And this is just simply a new trope. Our Law Review is publishing another article about framing the LGBTQ rights movement, which is especially relevant today with the Title VII cases at the Supreme Court. Could you please discuss how this decision and your description of preservation through transformation fit within the broader LGBTQ movement? Thank you so much for that question, Danielle. Yeah, so this term we see the, the Supreme Court will be hearing uh, three related cases within the broader spectrum of LGBTQ rights, um, both in terms of um, in terms of Title VII's application uh, to um, discrimination against transgender persons and people who are gay. And in the piece, we use this framework, which we borrow from Professor Reva Siegel, who's at Yale, uh, the preservation of discrimination through transformation. You know, basically what that speaks to is that it's our unwillingness to fully root out discrimination such that even when we see victories uh, that we think guts out discrimination, historically in the United States, we've seen the transformation of that discrimination such that then it's able to persist. And I'll give an example of that. If we were talking about race, you can think about slavery and the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. But then comes Jim Crow and separate but equal. So slavery is gone, but after Plessy v. Ferguson, another kind of subordinate is subordinating kind of condition that actually comes right out of our Supreme Court. And so these waves of discrimination that transform over time, if in fact we're not committed to the full practice and consistent on the full practice of rooting out discrimination. Now, Professor Siegel applies this to matters involving women and liberation. And we can see that you know, kind of in in live right now as if we had cameras in Alabama, in Georgia, in Louisiana, right? So we could think about in recent times, Roe v. Wade, seven to two opinion, Supreme Court. Many people wouldn't know that, right? Seven to two, Justice Blackman, rep Republican appointed, um, Title 10, which provides the 
reproductive health care for the poorest of Americans, shepherded through Congress by George H.W. Bush, signed into law by Richard Nixon, who, after he signed it, says in the New York Times and other publications, this is just basic common sense. Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, ding, 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 serving as treasurer for Planned Parenthood. Right. See that. And now where are we? Right. You sort of see this kind of wave that being the uplift, seeming like liberation, seeming like the ending of a certain type of discrimination. And yet seeing the reification of these things with this administration seeking to gut Title 10 members of Congress proposing uh, anti-abortion legislation, anti-abortion legislation being passed at the state level. So when we talk about this kind of preservation over time, just simply transformed, right? Like, you know, you have individuals who are nominated for the Supreme Court saying, like, oh, Roe is the law of the land. And yet the effort is to transform what Roe is all about. And we'd love to hear any and all content recommendations you have. Any books, podcasts, movies, TV shows that you would recommend? Okay. Oh, that's so wonderful. So um, I would say my forthcoming book uh, would be a great one, Policing the Womb. That would be absolutely terrific. Listen to the Strict Scrutiny podcast. And people should, of course, be listening to your podcast, too. Uh, I would say... Uh, let's go back and uh, and and read up on some of our history. So uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, um, I, I would say let's go there, read up on some Frederick Douglass. You know, I, I wish that more people knew about Polly Murray, um, lawyer, civil rights li- leader, civil libertarian. Let's lift up her work. Margaret Atwood. Yeah, The Handmaid's Tale. If you're not read it yet, you should be reading that now. Oh my gosh, there is so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Goodwin. We really appreciate your insights on this topic. Today's episode of Below the Line was hosted by Danielle Berkowski and Annie Prosnitz. Special thanks to Professors Michelle Goodwin and Erwin Chemerinsky, Emily McCormick, Olivia Vega, Jean Huangbo, Elliot Louthan, and Ken Zabler. Our music is June Funk by Finn Johnston. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes, subscribe in Apple Podcast, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.